This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. I hope I live up to the billing. Uh, hello, UX Australia. Hello, number 10. I was, I was one of the ones who was here first time around. I've missed a couple during the years, but there we go. So I'm uh, Ian. I'm one of the founders and principals at Mel Studios. And it's my absolute pleasure to be with you here on stage talking to you all. Um, I saw Lauren uh, just as she finished her talk, and she, she made sure I reminded you to tell you how nerve-wracking it actually is to be up here. I've done this quite a few times, but it, it doesn't get much easier with each time. And I know that many of the presenters, even the more seasoned ones, say the same thing. Uh, this is a relatively short talk about a big topic that I think presents a real major opportunity and clearly is picking up a theme that's already been heard in this room a couple of times already. Anyway, um, to get us into the foothills of this topic, I'm going to give you a couple of options and I'm going to ask you to choose one. So, option one is definitely the right thing to do in the long term. Oh my God, it's going to satisfy your customers, it's going to satisfy your shareholders, your staff, and maybe even society. But in the short term, you're going to fail to meet your business targets. Option two, you're going to hit those business targets. Great, but you're going to negatively impact your customers, your staff, and also your longer term business ambitions. Which one are you going to choose? Hands up for option one. Oh, you good people. Of course you are. What about option two, hitting those short-term targets? Woohoo! Oh, two of you, the cynical, more rational kind of types here. Good stuff. Okay, what about if I spice things up a little bit? What if I tell you if you don't meet your short-term targets, your job is on the line? In fact, not just your job, everyone here in the room's job is on the line. You won't get that bonus. Don't even think about that promotion. Now, which option are you going to take? Option one, where everyone gets sacked, woohoo! Or option two, where you're a hero. You're carried out of the room as being the person who saved not only your job, but everyone's job. Now who's going to choose option one? Okay, nice. I'll see you in the dole office. Who's going to choose option two now? Okay, not all of you responded, I can see that. There is no option three, people. Silence is option two. So please don't think you're evil if you chose option two. When presented with options, most people choose the option that aligns to whatever is incentivizing them, um, even if it is at odds with what they believe to be right. This doesn't mean that humans are evil. Well, not most of us. We simply generally do whatever we're incentivized to do. A US study by the National Bureau of Economic Research uh, uh, with 400 executives showed that over 80% would choose the short-term target or hitting the short-term target over something which they knew to be right in the longer term. And as we've seen through the Hain Royal Commission over the last year, I think 80% might be a tad on the conservative side. So when presented with options, most people choose the option that relates to whatever is incentivizing them most strongly. Incentives drive behaviour, so you better incentivise the right things. This isn't rocket science, but most of you will have heard this before, but I think it's a useful piece of scaffolding for the talk that is to come. Earlier this year, reflecting on the initial fallout of the Hain Royal Commission, Peter Collins, the director for the Centre of Ethical Leadership, said, 
Businesses continually set up incentive schemes and talk of being committed to the best interests of their customers, yet incentivise their employees to sell. It's an ethical trap, and it's almost impossible for rational employees not to sell. Now, this poses a few questions, most significantly. Why on earth are staff incentivised to do things at odds with what is in the best interest for their customers, particularly in organisations that say they're obsessed with delivering great experiences to their customers? To answer this, one needs to look beyond the incentives themselves and understand the environment from which these incentives are set, to delve into the murky world of the organisation and organisation culture and understand what is setting up these tensions and dichotomies for our staff. My talk today is going to explore this terrain, the relationship between customer experience, staff incentives, behaviours, organisations, organisational design and organisational culture. My intent is to give a bit of a wake-up call for those of you who haven't thought about the relevance of these things to your jobs to this point. It is intended as a pep talk for those of us that have been living in denial of the connectedness between these things or thinking that it's somebody else's job to solve these things for us or as a call to arms to galvanise the efforts of those of us who are striding into this new terrain with a fair bit of intimidation. My talk was conceived against a backdrop of the Hain Royal Commission, which is looking into misconduct in the banking, superannuation and financial services industry in Australia. And my intent is not to overly wallow or bore you with details of the Royal Commission. You can go and find those things if you so wish. Or even overly stick the boot into the Australian financial services industry, although that would be quite easy. But rather to use the Royal Commission as a lens through which to look at our own work and ponder other things that we could be doing to increase the impact of our human-centred efforts. Now, very briefly, for the benefit of our overseas visitors and those of you which haven't been paying much attention to the news over the last year, the year-long Hain Royal Commission has left us in absolutely no doubt that most, certainly many, of the banks in Australia have incentivised behaviour to enable them to meet business targets with very dire consequences for their customers. Nearly all of Australia's banks and financial institutions have been implicated. One of the major topics has been charging customers for services even when they don't receive services, and in some instances, continuing to charge customers for services years after they die. Here is an example of one of the exchanges at the Commission involving a council and the Executive General Manager of Commonwealth Bank, uh, sorry, Commonwealth Bank's well-farmed Colonial First State. Colonial First State would be a gold medalist if a corporate regulator was handing out medals for fees for no service, wouldn't it? general manager said, yes. What distinguishes this inquiry from many previous incidents of this type is that as things have come to light, instead of blaming rogue individuals at the coalface for these atrocities, the Commission has been able to reveal that this is the incentivised and institutionalised behaviour of these organisations. And as a consequence, rather than exclusively blaming frontline staff, there have been sackings and resignations of CEOs, executive teams and entire boards. Actually, not entire boards, but significant numbers of boards. At AMP, the chair of the board, the CEO, the general counsel and other members of the board have all resigned. And the market valuation of AMP has plummeted. Over the past year, the value is down 30%. And in a single week alone in April, $2 billion was wiped off AMP's valuation. Now, many of you may think this is no surprise. This is the financial services industry. 
But this is also the industry that I would estimate has spent the most of any other on customer experience and human-centred design in Australia over the last 20 years. So, how can this happen in an industry that has done so much human-centred design? Many of us in this room will have been employed at some point in time by some financial services company or consulted into a financial services company. In fact, who hasn't at some point in their career done work in the financial services industry? Okay, so I count about 10 hands. That's, that's most of you. Maybe that's why you're interested in this talk. If so many of us have done work for organisations that are shown to do such bad things, and yet we see our value in delivering better experiences to customers, are we kidding ourselves about the impact we're actually having? Have we been asleep at the wheel? Are we just lipstick merchants? Or are we and have we been and do we continue to be obsessively focusing our efforts on the wrong things? These organisations understand human-centred design theory. Start by understanding desirability, find solutions that are both desirable, viable and feasible. And yet, what appears to have been happening is they start by understanding what's desirable, and then they completely forget about all of that, <laughs> and they incentivise whatever helps them meet their business drivers. The reality appears to be that human-centred design is empty rhetoric if it is not supported by the organisation. And if this can happen in an industry that has spent more than any other on human-centred design, then couldn't this be happening in whatever industry you're now working on? Maybe things just haven't come to light just yet, or haven't happened at quite the same scale. And this is precisely the fear that is rippling through most boardrooms and executive suites in Australia right now. Through my recent studies with the Australian Institute of Company Directors, I can tell you in no uncertain terms that three words have sprung from almost nowhere to the top of the agenda of most boards. Culture, trust, and customer. They're realizing that they're gonna be held personally responsible for these things. These weren't even on their agenda a few years ago, and yet many are now struggling to know how to react and respond to these things. The travesties of the Hain Royal Commission have not been the acts of rogue individuals at the coalface of the organisation. They've been the institutionalised and incentivised behaviour of the banking culture. And it's incredibly deep-rooted, baked into the fabric, the DNA of how things are done in this organisation. And very few directors and executives have any realistic idea how they can meaningfully change culture. Yet they're discovering in no uncertain terms that they're actually going to be personally liable. And let's think about us. I think we're either incredibly blinkered, willfully ignorant, or extremely lucky if we believe that our human-centered efforts are not being neutered by some factor at play with inside our organizations. Yet many of us focus our efforts almost exclusively at crafting beautiful experiences for customers. Even those working at service design are only really teasing at the operating models and back-of-house processes to bring those customer experiences to life. As the Hain Royal Commission leaves us in no doubt, all this great service design and experience design can be completely neutered if the organisation isn't with you. 
As one reflects on this, you quickly realize there can be a low ceiling to human-centered efforts and ambitions if we don't push further and influence the organizational context within which we're trying to do these human-centered things. To maximize our impact, infuse the entire organization with our human-centered goodness, and also respond to this very real need they have around culture and trust, we must turn our attention to the design of organizations themselves. The materiality of what we are designing no longer needs to be pixels and experiences for customers. It needs to be making the organization a more human-centered place. Too much of our collective human-centered effort is spent exclusively on the design of things that customers directly interact with. To truly drive change in organizations, to ensure that our organizations are fertile ground for our customer-obsessed outputs to flourish, not environments that completely undermine our efforts, we must explicitly tackle what Dan Hill has referred to as the dark matter that is organizational culture, the DNA that defines how things are done within this organization. And I don't think we can any longer expect that to be a byproduct from our work. It needs to be an explicit focus. This isn't going to be easy. This isn't some 10-week project that spits out a shiny new app, and there'll be few, if any, medals won for doing it. But by influencing organizational culture, one can push beyond well-meaning human-centered rhetoric and ensure that the travesties we've heard about over the last year are only ever the work of evil rogues and not the desired and institutionalized output of an entire organization. If you truly believe in having the most positive impact on improving the lives of people as they interact with the world around them, if you want to help organizations become better versions of themselves, Rather than simply putting human-centered band-aids at the coalface between the organization and its customers, I think that you too should be thinking more about the design of organizations and their culture. This isn't going to be easy, so buckle up. Having poked at the problem, I intend to dive into some of the root causes and share some things that we've been doing and that you can consider as you move into this space. There is a, a growing acceptance that short-termism is the root cause of all of these woes. Some call it the church of finance, others shareholder primacy, and in the public sector it gets called electioneering. Whatever you label it, an over-indexing of the short over longer-term ambitions is the root cause of bad decisions, both in the public and private sector. And people are talking about this more and more. We now see on display at the Royal Commission the bitter fruits of the focus on shareholder primacy. A challenge to prevailing orthodoxy is long overdue. And this from a chairman of ANZ Bank. A realization is beginning. I wanted to underline the word beginning because it's quite scary that that's what's happening. But anyway, a realization is beginning that for companies to be successful, they have to have a broader purpose than making profits in the short term. And in the public sector, we hear precisely the same refrain. Addressing the Institute of Public Administration, the CEO of the Business Council of Australia said, I fear that many modern politicians have lost sight of the fundamental role of the public service. Its custodianship of the long-term policy agenda has been eroded by short-term thinking. 
And this fixation with short-termism is at odds with the rhetoric inscribed in the duties of the directors, according to the Australian Institute of Company Directors, and also traditional business management theory. When making decisions, Australia, the Australian Institute of Company Directors states that directors must take into account the best interests of all stakeholders, present and future. And this means balancing short and long-term implications, not over-indexing now over tomorrow. And Peter Drucker, who wrote this book and pretty much every other book about business management theory, says, profit is not the explanation, cause, or rationale of business behavior and business decisions, but rather the test of their validity. One would struggle to explain much of what one has heard from a royal commission other than as an obsession with profit. But thankfully, there is hope. One doesn't need to look too hard to find examples of highly successful organizations stating that it is only through a focus on the longer term and customers that they are deriving their success. In an open letter to shareholders a few years ago, Jeff Bezos from Amazon said, proactively delighting customers earns trust, which earns more business from most customers, even in new business arenas. Take a long-term view and the interests of customers and shareholders align. And the excellent book, Firms of Endearment, slightly tacky title, I think, but I like the book very much, explains how organizations that far exceed stock market performance focus equally on the needs of all stakeholders in what it labels the SPICE model, through balancing the needs of society, partners, investors, customers, and employees and not overly indexing one over the other, these firms drive phenomenal success for their organizations, both in the short and longer terms. So, how might we, we like our how might we's, don't we? How might we help organizations refocus from short-termism? And there was a pause. I think it would be really easy to put this in the too hard basket. Think of it as a problem beyond one's pay grade and certainly there'll be few of us which are actively sought out to get involved in solving this type of question. But as we've discovered, if we don't tackle it, it is possible that our work will be completely undermined by the short-term decisions that organizations make. As a foundation stone, I think you need to be an optimist. You need to not be completely cynical about the individuals that are leading these organizations. These people are humans too. You need to believe, and sometimes it can be difficult to do so, but you need to believe that these people who make these decisions are not fully conscious of their actions. And this optimism appears to be borne out by the reactions that many directors are giving to the Royal Commission. When presented with the insights, many are recoiling in horror at the realities of the situation. Some of the stories make you want to go in a corner and weep, and some of the most vulnerable people have been affected. We need to really unpick the cultural issues that have got us to this point where people who in their day-to-day -day lives would see themselves as abiding by a set of moral principles when at work somehow let those principles slide. Outside of the financial sector, at MELD, we have seen executives and boards react with similar horror when presented with the insights from current state research we have conducted with their customers. Many executives and boards are simply appalled when they realize the experience that they are delivering to their customers and frontline staff. We've genuinely had people in tears watching films of experiences that those customers are having within the last few months. 
and as a consequence, decisions have been taken to lead to better outcomes for customers, fully aware of the implications for the business. You see, there may be some exceptions to this, but generally, decision makers aren't on the whole evil. Most don't inherently want to do bad things to hurt people, but their role hasn't traditionally afforded them the type of access to customers that our role does. It is far easier to make good decisions for customers if you have access to those customers and visibility of what the experience is. But the more senior you get in a large organization, often the more distanced you become from actually those customers. And also, it isn't just things that customers directly interact with that impact the customer experience. And I, I think that we're only just beginning as an industry to really appreciate that. So, an easy and impactful thing that we can all do, those of us which conduct research and bring it back into our organisations, is to consider the audience beyond our immediate project team. Every project is an opportunity to build empathy and understanding, not just within your project team, but within the entire organisation. And this includes your executive and your board. Every engagement with customers is an opportunity to obtain customer insight that can be used to enable your organisation to make better, more customer-informed decisions, even strategic, strategically significant decisions. Now, it doesn't mean bombarding senior individuals with 50-page reports every two weeks. This isn't going to be good for anyone. It means synthesising data further or conducting meta-research, research on the research, to reveal higher-level insights and create materials such as documentary films to enable people to get snapshots, pocket-sized bites of what is going on, and that the life of the research can live on beyond that which you personally communicate. Embedded in this is a shift in how we think about what we do. And to pick up on Lauren's framing of this, let's uh, each of us quickly find someone you can talk to. And what I want you to do is tell them what you do. What's your story about your work? I'll give you a minute for this. Go. That's 30 seconds. And bring your conversations to a natural conclusion over the next 10 seconds whilst I'm talking in the backgrounds. Five, four, Hush. Good. You're, you're, you're a very good crowd, I, I can assure you. If I was uncomfortable about speaking, I'm not now, okay. Um, so my guess is that many of you spoke about outputs. Yeah? I design websites or apps or create wireframes. I do research to inform the design of dot, dot, dot. Many of us, we, we're kind of conditioned to see our value in the outputs of what we do. I think if you focus instead on the activities that you do, we find that we already do a lot of things of cultural significance within our organizations. 
We help people understand different perspectives. We help people collaborate. We help people learn and iterate. We help people have a growth mindset. We help people reach across organizational silos and come to a joined up decision. By acknowledging these things and other things we do as a significant part of our work, we can reframe our own and others' perspective of the value we bring to our organizations. You are the glue that binds together the fractious parts of your organization and enables them to come to harmonious, customer-informed decisions that brings value both to customers and your organization. You not only collaborate with others, but you infuse others with the ability to collaborate. Caught up in this is a shift from thinking about designers learning methodologies so that they can deliver design outputs to thinking about infusing design mindsets for all within the organization. I think this is the crucial evolution of an organization's maturity towards becoming a more customer or a human-centered organization. For HCD to flourish, you need to create fertile and a human-centered environment within the organization. One can't continue to plant our beautiful human-centered projects into barren wastelands and then watch them wither without thinking, maybe we need to water the soil and add some nutrients to it a bit. And although much is being done with inside organizations to increase design capability, much of that is currently focused on teaching design methodologies to the next generation of designers. I think it's very worrying to think of inexperienced designers being exposed to such barren, unwelcoming wastelands. So, in practical terms, we need to nurture design mindsets amongst all within our organizations. Grow readiness to be participants, procurers, recipients of human-centered work. And this means things like design awareness training for all, and things like coaching individuals to understand it's okay not to have the answer, taking time to reflect, to understand how to collaborate, to celebrate asking good questions rather than only rewarding good answers. But we're unlikely to positively impact the lives of people to the maximum effect if we only work on projects where the customer is the focus of our design activity. To paraphrase Dan Hill, the insights from the Royal Commission have taught us that sometimes Trojan horses don't work. They can get completely undermined by the dark matter that is the organizational culture. If one wishes to maximize the impact of human-centered design and, and respond to the crying need that organizations have around culture and trust, we need to focus our projects where the organization itself is the explicit focus of our design activity. These are not human-centered band-aids at the intersection of the organization and its customers. These are projects that cut to the heart of the organization, defining a human-centered core that will create a fertile environment for more human-centered design projects to prosper in the future. The key thing for any organization wanting to get serious about customer experience and improving organizational culture is a human-centered culture change program. Based on the fears stirred by the Hain Royal Commission within boardrooms and executive suites, I wouldn't be surprised if your organization has a committee or the HR department has a program of work already underway around this topic. In our experience, these need to be multi-year programs involving a multitude of activities such as mindset growth for all within the organization, apprenticeships for design practitioners, review and alignment of organizational methodologies, and redefinition of incentive models. But most crucially of all, 
defining an overarching human-centered purpose or mission that informs everything the organization does and becomes the anchor for every decision it takes. And from that purpose, you define scaffolding to help it make sense to people, such as values and behaviors to bring that purpose to life. And from that, you define collective incentives that encourage the desired behaviors rather than rewarding business targets. And this isn't theoretical. We're already seeing human-centered design recognized as having a role to play in precisely this type of work. At MELD, we were humbled and delighted to see our work to grow human-centered design mindsets and capability within Queensland government recognized as the co-winner of the top overall award at this year's Good Design Awards. Thank you. <laughs> we actually should do a little bit of a dance here. I, I would like to personally take the claim, but it, it wasn't me, as you'll see in a moment. This is the first time that the Good Design Awards has given the award to something that wasn't a tangible product. Everything else was kind of, you know, toilet, hold, toilet holders and things like that. It was a str very strange evening, anyway. Um, our deliverable was effectively a new way of thinking, a process that could be applied to anything that people in Queensland government do of any size, shape, scale or channel, thus affecting customers at a completely different level. I'll show you a brief video which just gives you an insight into the work that we did. the capability building program was to try and bring as many people as possible along on the journey of putting customers first. Human-centered design is a different way of thinking and it's a different way of operating. In government it's, it's very different in some areas. Too often we've designed um, all of our services to what's easiest for us. So creating a human-centered design toolkit and bringing those mindsets to the forefront was critical in um, our customer first value. One of the things that we focused on was understanding what some of the blockers and challenges were for people in terms of executing a human-centered design process, understanding where specific government-related contexts that other toolkits or other methodologies that are out there might not necessarily help people to navigate. And these were key moments for us to develop with people practical ways to still be able to work with those processes in a way that enabled them to be true to a human-centered design approach. It was really important that we get those tools out into projects teams for people of different roles to use them to get a good understanding of what was working for them, what they needed more understanding on and had regular forums for them to be able to provide feedback to us. What we also did, we took the toolkit and piloted it live on a couple of different projects with people from government who had varying levels of exposure and experience with the design process. So we were starting to learn what's missing from the toolkit. How do we explain things a little differently or easier for people so that they can understand exactly what we're doing and we were able to incorporate all of that feedback into the next iteration of the toolkit. Mm -hmm. 
design capability isn't just about tools and methods. We also tried a number of different things to be able to help grow capability at scale. This included virtual coaching, which had teams from all over Queensland call in to talk about topics that related to human-centred design. We created an insights hub that centralised a lot of customer insights around how people engage with Queensland government into one place, so teams could use it as a starting point for their design. For us, following a design process in the development of the toolkit was absolutely critical and it has completely made it a more successful project because we were able to build such a depth of understanding of the different levels people were at throughout the organisation and what their needs were. We were in a position to create a toolkit that people could pick up and relate to and go, okay, I can do this. Through this change process, the team itself has become this trusted wealth of information that can say confidently to our clients and, and any of the project managers that we're working with, have we really understood the problem and how do we make sure that what we're designing is going to, to solve the problem that they were starting off with? It's also made a big difference in the level of collaboration that we see across government and that's something that's really needed. We are using it to build capability throughout government, constantly sharing that document, very open and transparent. The more people that are using the toolkit, the better. Pretty much every single agency now have been exposed to it in one way or another, but it's a way of working within Queensland Government and one that we want to continually build upon. Crying need for more of sorry. There's a crying need, <laughs> crying need for more of us to get involved in projects like this one. Um, there's more stories about this piece of work that you can find on our website if you're interested. In the absence of us stepping forward and getting more involved in these topics of culture and trust that, that senior parts of organisations are crying out for. Um, they're, they're trying to find their own solutions. So I, I think that the reaction I've seen uh, from my interactions with the uh, Australian Institute of Company Directors is, is a mixture of fear and desperation going on at the moment. They are scrambling to find ways to respond to this. Some are trying to find new ways of asking questions. Should we rather than can we is one of the most popular of these. And although that may well be a better question, I wonder if one can actually come to a better answer if one doesn't actually have any customer insight to inform that decision. Another suggestion is that they should get closer to customer complaints. But as many of us will know, these can be very noisy places that over-index a vocal minority. And a simply reviewing a complaint without context is no pathway to enlightenment. Others are putting in place whistleblower lines and a bunch of other well-intentioned stuff. They show willing, but I don't think they're going to go to the heart of actually transforming a culture. So what do I want to leave you with? You could con continue to consider cultural impact as a ripple, a byproduct from your work, as I did myself for a good many years. But I think you're in for a very long journey, and from time to time, you're going to find that your best work is completely undermined by the organizational culture. You may think 
but all of this sounds like work for someone else rather than you. And don't worry, I'm sure there's going to be a good amount of more customer-focused work to be done for many, many years to come. But what I really want is I want us to rise to this challenge, to raise our game, to set our ambitions higher, to step forward and associate ourselves with these topics, find a language that enables us to meaningfully contribute to these conversations, and we need to do all of that without losing our human-centered core. That's not going to be an easy task. It might be the toughest that we've actually faced. But if we truly believe in improving the lives of people as they interact with the world around them, we simply must help organizations become better versions of themselves. For me, this isn't some theoretical dilemma. I've recently studied and graduated from the Australian Institute of Company Directors. I am leaning into this challenge, and I'm actively working to create more customer-informed, human-centered organizations. I encourage you to lean in as well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have time for a few questions, and I'm going to make it Chris's problem to run the microphone around to reach you. So uh, if you have a question for Ian, raise your hand. There's one over there. And whilst Chris is running around, I'll say Karina, who you saw in the video, is actually down here. So if you have any questions about that, I might, I might get Karina up here anyway. So. Hi. Um, great talk. Thank you. Uh, first, sorry, I'm over here. Hi. Um, my question is really about what you talked about at the beginning in terms of incentives. I'm interested in your view on what you incentivize at the front line. Well, I, I think it's clear if you incentivize business target, then people will do whatever behaviours enable them to get to that target. Um, I think a much more preferable thing is to identify what are the human-centred behaviours that we wish to encourage, and then what are ways in which we can encourage those desirable behaviours, rather than to set people any way that you can get to that target that you need to get to. I think that's a, a, a preferable, more sensible thing. The other aspect of it, I think, is uh, in complex environments, you need collective incentives rather than individual incentives. Great talk. Thank you. Um, how does a piece of work like this even come into the minds and get commissioned in the first place? That's quite surprising in itself. Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough, so I can talk, talk about the Queensland government piece because um, I was actually personally involved in, in wooing and winning that piece of work. Um, They'd had failed experiments, as many organisations have, with human-centred design or human-centred design projects, or we want to you know, bring in a new toolkit, a new way of working here. And they were as I say, as many have, they're about to give up. They, they kind of went, this the promise sounds good, but the reality seems difficult stroke impossible to actually implement. And I think the key strength about what we did was we didn't come over with an off-the-shelf, here's how you do it. It wasn't a swag bag full of methodologies. It was about listening and understanding. We, we genuinely took a human-centered design approach to development of a, creating a human-centered design approach for that organization, and that helped. That doesn't answer your question. Um, uh, in that instance, I think we were lucky that they actually asked us about that kind of work, and we've been, you know, playing around in that kind of pond a bit. Um, the response that we got from that work and the response we get from talking about that work, and also from the other side, what I've seen from the Australian Institute of Company Directors, makes me think that a whole lot more of us should be playing in that pond a whole lot more. And it isn't something which 
you know, the Dark Matter and Trojan Horses. I'm, I hope you will know what I'm referring to there. Um, Dan Hill's great book, if you haven't read it, do so. Um, you know, the, the kind of the essence is that the Trojan Horse, which is the human-centered design initiative, will help kind of, the, the, the people will get out of the horse and will, they'll kind of ha have a bigger impact. I'm beginning to question the reality of that in some organizations. I think culture beats that Trojan Horse sometimes. to work on this project, so I presume that there was some kind of appetite for change within the organisation. So my question is, how do you, as someone who is not on a board, push up in an organisation to create the appetite if they don't even know that they need to be thinking this way? I love your question. So, because um, you, you helped me talk about something which I haven't spoken about so far. Most organisations um, will have a customer first, a customer imperative which they've got, and they've got none of the scaffolding between that rhetoric and then what do I do with this as a middle management of this organisation or as a frontline staff member? It's, it's kind of, as I say, it's empty rhetoric. So I think that what our work is doing, it's about kind of grabbing hold of that endorsed, we actually believe this is right, but what does that actually mean? You know, oh, let's think about doing better things for our customers. Well, what does that actually mean in a more tangible, tactical way that everyone in the organisation can actually do something about? And that's the reason that it's from a human-centred purpose, but then you derive values that people can get and understand and they can live those values. You define behaviours that are really very tactical ways in which people can understand what is and what isn't acceptable around here. And then as you're trying to make this change, you possibly have to make the adoption of those behaviours explicit. And that's where incentives might come in, in terms of actually actively incentivising the new behaviours you want to see. So that's how I would start to draw a connection between those things. But I think most organisations have got the customer somewhere quite high. It's just that they've got an empty void between there and project land. It's very linked to the previous point. Um, throughout the years, I've seen it move to customer focus, as you say, the customer experience. Um, I really like your point around moving from methodology to mindset, and training and education being a big part of that. The buy-in at the executive level through to the project level, which you just alluded to, is the scaffolding that's missing um, in, in place in part. How is the next wave going to be enabled so that the executive buy-in through to the middle managers, the ones that don't implement it in a way, they're not bought in yet? A, a long answer to a question like that. I'll give you a, tr a trite response or a, a trite That's not a way to precursor what one's about to say, is it? <laughs> Get better, Barker. Um, a quick response. I, I think that um, many organisations are currently doing lots of training. And they are really, they are, and some of you might be these people, so I apologise, put your hands over your ears if you associate with this, but people who were doing something completely different and now are expected to adopt this whole new methodology in this big scary organisation which has never done human-centred design before, and yet you've got to convince them that that's what they need to be doing. That's a very unenviable position to be in. I think that, you know, I'm a bit of a gardener, and I realise if I keep on 
putting the plants in and they keep on withering and dying, but I need to put some nutrients in the soil. And that's, that's my message here. We're starting to see it happening. So we're working with a couple of organisations that are looking at readiness training for everyone inside their organisation. And we're not talking about small companies. Um, and the objective of that is not to train more designers. It's not to train more people in methodologies. It's to make people realise how they can collaborate with others to make them realise that it's not about kind of working on the perfect solution here and then not sharing it until it's done or kind of being competitive with other people in your organisation. So I, I think we've got a, an emerging, sophisticated conversation to be having about this. And from the flip side, I truly do see um, uh, executives and directors floundering about what they need to do about these things. And I think that it's... It, they're not going to come and find us in many instances. We need to actually raise our game, talk about those things, and associate ourselves with these problems. And as I say, that's what I would encourage all of us to be doing. But doing it in a way that we don't become part of the problem. We need to, our strength is the fact that we're connected to the outside of the organisation. We see the organisation from the outside in. That continues to be our biggest single strength. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.